This is Cinema Roundtable. My name is Stefan Decker, and I am here with some new friends. This is our first Cinema Roundtable without co-host Bo on. Uh, so I'm here with Jared today, whom we met uh, for the first time a few months back. So welcome back, Jared. Great to be back. And we are back with Jake and Lexi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yes, they were here for the first time last time, right? When we Correct. talked about Candyman. Yes. yes. So uh, we're, we're really excited to be introducing you to new friends, and, and we hope that we have some new friends uh, to introduce to you in the months to come. But for the time being, we have a nice little crew, and we are here for the newest session of Cinema Roundtable. And today, our feature film is the latest in the 007 franchise, No Time to Die. And I believe it's just called No Time to Die. I don't think like 007 is technically part of the title. Correct. Yes. That's what I thought. Okay. But as always, we will be talking about some of the other movies that we've seen first. And I would like to uh, throw it to Lexi first. It looks like we've got another segment of horror movies to talk about, and we're going to kick it off with... The Night House, something I'm interested in seeing myself, but haven't yet. Good. Yeah, it was really good. Um, we have Jake and I have been watching a ton of horror movies this month, so this just happened to be on our little calendar that Jake puts together. I, I guess I should note that at the time we're recording this, it is October, and, yes. and Halloween <laughs> is coming up. <laughs> well, I mean, horror movies are pretty normal for us <laughs> to be watching year-round, but October, we definitely amp it up. Um, but yes, so The Night House, it is a psychological horror. It's about a woman named Beth. Um, her husband, who has recently committed suicide, um, has left her alone in this big lake house that he built from the ground up for them to live in. Um, as she's starting to pack some of his things up, um, she starts having a lot of nightmares and these very creepy visions, which ultimately lead to her going through more of his things, kind of an invasion of prime of privacy um, on her part. But he is her late husband, so it's fair. Um, but she finds that he was hiding some very dark and strange secrets. So that is kind of the general premise. Um, I loved in this movie that as she's starting to have these visions and she's starting to see the things around her, um, you feel really disoriented with her. And I love a movie where you get to really be in the main character's shoes. And so every scene, it gives you a little bit more of the puzzle to put together. And so by the end, you're able to see this whole picture where you're going, oh, yeah, this happened earlier on in the movie. And that's why she said this. And that's why this character did this. Um but the visuals that they are able to pull together throughout the whole movie make it act like that's the most interesting part because it gives you that really unsettling feeling like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you see a towel that's like draped over the door or something and you have to stop and be like, is that a person? Because the way that they do the background shots, you're like, wait, that could be something. And then it's like, it looks like a man's head cut out from like the shelf to where the wall blocks your vision. 
But then you see it turn and you're like, wait, is that actually the hallway? Is that a person? What is that? So it just is really interesting the way that they were able to pull all of those shots together. I also really appreciated that every detail throughout the movie just felt really meaningful. So the side characters were there to progress the story. They weren't just something to be there to get killed or something bad to happen to them. They were actually meaningful to every part of the movie. And I think all of the acting in general was great in the movie. I will say that the ending, it gave you another problem. And so it kind of left it open. So you did get to have closure with her husband's passing, but it opened up a whole other door for you to really think about. Um, And so that was kind of an interesting way to end, I would say. It was a choice, definitely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I... Overall, I loved it. I thought it was really good. Mm-hmm. I would highly recommend it. You've got me interested in it, especially as you were talking about the way they were framing some of the shots. There have been yes. a lot of great horror movies recently that really utilize the composition. I think of uh, The Invisible Man from last year. I think of like Hereditary, mm-hmm. where they just hold on these shots. Yes. And it really makes your eye like search the frame because you're, you're kind of like, wait, wh- why are we holding here? Like, wh- What else am I supposed to be seeing? And it slowly... like reveals itself or really yes. makes you take a second look. So that's cool. Yeah, the subtleties are just really interesting the way that they that they were able to shoot that. And then as it goes on, you're it's more in your face instead of just in the corners or in the shadows. Nice build so, up. Ooh, yeah, it's great. Interesting. Yeah. Got some dynamics, some crescendo in, in film composition, yes. as you might say. Where it's just it's like bam, bam, bam in your face. There was a point in it when Jake and I looked at each other and we were that is so cool that they did that. So, yeah, um, interesting. I remember in a recent episode of the show, we talked about how some people can really let endings ruin an overall experience. And it sounds like you didn't really care much for this ending. How does that affect the rest of the experience of the whole movie for you personally? So the ending... It definitely ties certain aspects together. And you, like I said, you get closure for her husband, mm. but there's a whole backstory that you learn in the movie that's important that I won't spoil for you guys. Um, that it just leaves the door open for you to think, is this really where it ends for her? Mm. Um, so I like an open ending in a movie every now and then. Um, I I like that they gave the closure the closure for the husband's storyline. Um, but even though I didn't prefer it for her, I guess, it it didn't ruin the whole movie okay. overall for me. So you're more of a, like, it's all about the journey, not necessarily where it ends up. Like, a bad ending won't ruin it for you. Yeah, right. exactly. I'm kind of the same way, although I will say a bad movie can certainly be more or less redeemed by a really great ending like if they really tie it all yeah. together yeah i agree for sure which i think might be related to a movie uh jake might be talking about <laughs> <laughs> um if i would say that i i wouldn't call the ending a bad ending by any means it just doesn't tie everything in a nice bow like a lot of movies do um and I, I think that kind of adds to kind of the ominous nature of the movie. I would this movie is kind of classified in a horror genre, but it's more of just a psychological thriller because um, it deals a lot with 
grief and just kind of dealing with with that type of um, loss in your life and how that can kind of affect you mentally. And um, I think the fact that just to play off of what Lexi was saying, I think the acting is really good in it because they keep it very well contained. It's really just probably, what would you say, like four it's, characters yep. that take up a large majority of the of the cast. And it really takes place in one location in yeah. The titular night house. So um, I think because of that, they can keep the story pretty simple and focus on the things they really want to focus on, like the cool visuals, like the internal struggle. And um, overall, I think it makes for a really um, enjoyable viewing experience. All right. Well, we're going to uh, keep it in the horror genre. And and I believe this is the one that Jared is alluding to, because uh, I know a little bit about this one myself. Uh, we're going to talk about the movie Malignant. Jake's going to take the lead on this one. Well, uh, Malignant is a movie that came out about a month ago, probably. Um, the newest James Wan movie. Uh, I assume if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with James Wan. Um, in The Conjuring, Saw, Insidious, all started those franchises as well as the one of the Fast and the Furious movies. Yep, Furious 7. Furious 7, and then also Aquaman. So Launched big, a billion-dollar franchise time. with that. And there's a reason why I'm prefacing all of this before talking about the movie. Um, a general plot synopsis, or just kind of a blurb, I guess you would say, is uh, it stars Annabelle Wallace as a woman named Madison, who starts seeing visions of people being murdered, um, in kind of a dreamlike state, and she finally realizes that those events are happening in real life. Um, if that sounds like a generic plot, I can tell you right now that this is not a generic movie by any stretch <laughs> of the word. Don't forget, she's adopted. She is adopted. Um, and it, it's kind of hard. I When I was prepping for this, I, I, I know that we had talked in the past about wanting to discuss this movie, and now that we're here... It's really hard to talk about without getting into too much detail. Yeah, you because you're either talking about like the first, like, well, not even the first. It's like the majority of the movie before you know what happens in the final act. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah, you, you just can't say much. Yeah, um, I will just say that I thoroughly enjoyed this movie um, because I kind of when I was watching it, I was like, this movie knows what it's doing. <laughs> it and the reason why I prefaced all of the the James Wan's accolades is because I do not think that a director would be able to make this movie if they did not have the resume that James Wan has. It was a major flex on his part. I think Warner Brothers just wrote him a blank check. They're like, "Thank you for Aquaman." It was do what you, you made want. me a billion dollars exactly. with Aquaman. Make literally anything you want to make. Um I would say that if you were turned off by this movie by the trailer, that has no bearing on whether or not you will like this movie. How much did you know going into this, Jake? I mean, we had a bit of a discussion, I think, prior to you and Lexi seeing it. So what was your... I knew that it was crazy. That was all that I knew about it. I did not... I purposely stayed away from as much spoiler talk as possible. But the first scene happened and I said okay, we're in for a ride. Because the thing that's interesting about this movie is that the first scene is pretty crazy, and then it turns into a typical James Wan movie after that for about 30 to 45 minutes, and then it decides to go back to what that first 
scene is and kind of go from there. I wrote down some things that really stuck out with me in terms of influence. Um, I think that if you are a fan of Jalo movies, which are Italian horror movies, especially the work of Dario Argento with uh, Suspiria and, and uh, Deep Red and movies like that, um, the, the killer in this movie is very reminiscent of this. Um, it also reminded me of early 2000s horror movies. Speaking kind of, of James Wan starts. Speaking, it, it kind of felt like a going back to your roots kind of thing. Um, and I think people see movies like The Conjuring and and some of the more serious, I guess, stuff, and they go, this is super weird. I don't understand why James Wan would do this. But then I say, have you ever seen Dead Silence before? Have you seen the last 30 minutes of, of the first Insidious movie? I mean, this guy obviously understands what he wants to do with a movie and say that I'm going to put camp in my movie because that's what I want to do. Um, I thought it was also interesting because some of it reminded me of the movie Upgrade um, in which, some of which yeah, is Lee Wanell, who was his partner for the, for Saw. Yeah, they met um, in film school down. Exactly, in Australia. Yep. So I don't really know how much I should share about this movie, yeah, I I haven't seen it, but like I know all the major like plot points. Oh man, Stefan, you're missing out. Am you I? should definitely I watch saw, it. I, uh, I feel like I got most of the gist, to be honest. Um, but I yeah, I can't imagine what you would be able to share without giving away too much. You know, I mean, I already kind of feel bad with what I've already said because it's. It's hard to talk about this movie without going into detail. I will say that Lexi did not watch this yep, with me. Yep, Stefan, I am oh. in the same boat as you. I did oh. not watch this movie, and I also have avoided all the spoilers. It just hasn't been at the top of my list to watch. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I have no idea, and I feel like what you have said does not help me at all. <laughs> no. Well, that's good. Yeah. I... I, I uh... <laughs> I, I don't I don't really know. As someone else who has seen it, is there anything else that you would like to share? No, you about had it? the you had a great point when you said that first scene because it is it's those first five minutes. If you are in for what those first five minutes are, as far as like, yeah, like you said, the camp, the style, the just over like the, the top tone acting, and, yeah, and acting. Because there yeah. are some lines in this movie that you're like, okay, how can anybody say that <laughs> with a straight face? <laughs> um, literally, like it's time to cut out the cancer, and you've been a bad boy. Things like that that you're just like, oh boy. And just the, the I, I'm not going to go into detail, but the puppetry in this movie mm-hmm. is like something out of a trauma movie or like something <laughs> from kind of a schlocky Lloyd Kaufman, Lloyd Kaufman yeah. yeah, type of movie. Um, don't expect The Conjuring when you watch right. this movie. Yeah. And even uh, James Wan has said in interviews not to expect that and that he purposely tried to make a movie that you would find on a back yes. shelf at a movie store. <laughs> so with that in mind, it just – a lot of people have written off this movie as a bad movie. Anybody I've recommended it to has said that. But anybody who loves horror movies or knows James Wan and things and are in for that, yeah, they're they're in line with Jake. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to say for this. Um I would definitely go out and see it. Unfortunately, it is not on HBO Max anymore. They only had a th- a one-month run on HBO Max before they were going to pull it off. I bet it'll be back in like three months as all their other uh, 
premiere movies have been this this year. Yeah, because since HBO Max has got a lot of ones, because isn't Dune coming out on mm-hmm. HBO Max, and they're kind of releasing some bigger ones. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Kind of their back catalog will start to come back. So yep. when it hits streaming again, I would recommend it, especially if you're a horror fan. It is not going to be for everyone by any means, but it was a wild ride. Obviously, he's launched a lot of franchises, uh, starting with not only Saw, but the basically, to, to say what it was, the torture porn genre, essentially, but also the Conjuring universe and Insidious as well. Do you see a future for a malignant franchise? So, the final shot of the movie felt like they could have teased, but it felt like he also had some restraint with it as well. Um, Not a word often used with this movie. Yes. <laughs> One of the few moments of restraint. Um, there's just, there, I, I think that this will stand by itself um, because I think the best part of this movie is not knowing what to expect going into it. Yes. So um, it'd be kind of hard to cap- capture capture the magic, I guess, right. of this movie with a sequel. Um, but yeah. That's how I felt about it. Well, those of you that are listening that have seen it are nodding along and laughing, and those of you that haven't are just wondering what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> That's the appropriate reaction, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to cap off this little horror section uh, with like a duo conversation. You both saw this one, right? We did, Okay, yeah. VHS 94 is the name of this. Uh, and we'll let you guys take the lead. Um, so VHS 94 is the fourth movie in the VHS series. It is a horror anthology movie. Um, so each segment, there's going to be, there's four segments as, long, as well as a wraparound story um, that are all by different directors. Um, actually, the director of The Night House is the person that wrote the story for VHS, VHS 94. Yeah. Oh, oh. For the for the newest one. Oh, he, he's involved with the newest one as well. Yeah. Wow. He has been involved in the older ones as okay. well, but he actually is credited as the story by. Um, so it, it was pretty fun to have that. Um, this is basically the the general plot of this as well is uh, the the first the wraparound story is about um, some cops like some a SWAT team that is breaking into a house that seems to be kind of a drug house or a cult house. It's kind of up in the air, and they're finding VHS tapes kind of as the um, as they go along that kind of lead you into the next tape. Um, did you want to talk about the each sure. tape? Yep. So um, the first tape that they come across is a short called Storm Drain, um, and it's about a local news reporter who's doing a story because the – People around the town have reported seeing a rat man in the sewers. And so she is trying to compile the story with her cameraman um, by going to the sewers, interviewing the locals around. And it's very. If you've ever seen a local news segment of (laughs) specifically the one of people looking for a leprechaun it was like a viral video oh wow the leprechaun video from a few years ago yeah that's what it really reminded us of Mm -hmm. it was very silly um but so she's interviewing like the 
the like militia man that's like patrolling the storm drain and <laughs> the other accounts that people have seen rat man it's kind of terrifying yeah i yeah i think that was my favorite one of the of the bunch i would agree I'll do the second one. The second yeah. one is is called Empty Wake. It's basically about um, someone who is um, kind of hosting, I guess, a, a wake for someone at a funeral home, but no one is there. Um, no one shows up to it, and uh, the casket will periodically move, and she'll try to figure out what's going on. Um, it's very slow, um, very uh, spooky. I would say um, it's the thing that's interesting about this is it's directed by Simon Barrett, um, who is the writer for all of the Adam Wingard movies. So you're next and the guest and all of those types of movies. So definitely in the same tone as one of love those types those of movies. Um, yes. Uh, I, I love those guys as well. Um, this one, um, that's about the extent of what to share with that one. Um, yeah. Yes. And so the next video that they find is called The Subject. Um, It's essentially about a mad scientist who is obsessed with trying to join human life with machines, trying to make them completely robotic. So the opening shot is a man's head connected to mechanical spider legs, and the doctor's very disappointed that the man can't survive with his upgrades. Mm -hmm. Um, So the whole short is basically either filmed from the doctor's video diary or one of his subjects who he has replaced her the top half of the top half of her head with a camera um and the local police come in because the doctor uh they know that he's the one who's abducting these people to run these experiments and so they finally find him um they kill him then they decide that they are going to kill the subjects, but I won't share what other details the subjects have. Video diaries from the 90s. Jeez, it's almost like that could tie into a movie we were just talking about a few <laughs> minutes ago, <Yeah>. Jake. <laughs> um, and just something that I want to share about that one as well is this is an Indonesian short. Oh. Um, so... Um, there's some different things about that, and this director had previ- previously done a short in um, VHS 2, which was also my favorite one probably of the entire series, so I was very excited for this one. And um, it is uh, absolutely insane and absolutely, like, the most violent thing I've seen in a very long time, so just beware of that. Um, and then the, the final short of this uh, is called Terror, and it's basically about a extremist group, kind of a alt-right type of group, who is who has a person um, kidnapped in their like facility, I guess, and they are testing its blood to use as an explosive. Um, you learn pretty quickly that this is a vampire. That when they put blood in the sun, it makes things explode. So they want to weaponize the vampire blood. It's genius. It was actually a very clever idea for a short. Um, But that's about, again, I'll say that's kind of the gist of the short. Um, I would say as an overall feel for me for for this film, it was my second favorite one. 
of the of the group in terms of this the movie as a whole um i think it would go 94 is my second favorite of the of the group what did you think of i think 94 was my first favorite i will say it's the only one of the vhs movies that i can remember what all of the shorts were the other ones kind of blend together so i'm guessing my brain just kind of cut out the ones that think, I didn't care about. Do you think about. it'll stay that way with you since it's the most recent one you've seen? Or like, is there something indelible about these shorts from this this particular entry? I think this one will probably stay with me. Honestly, I think that typically for anthology movies, I tend to fall asleep. And yeah. so <laughs> if I'm staying awake and I can remember them at this point, it's a pretty good indicator. I was, I was curious where this like ranked since, you know, Anthology movies like this, you know, they've been around for a long time, but as far as like VHS, uh, the ABCs of death, they all kind of like launched around the same time, like over 10 years ago. Like Mm -hmm. where does this one fall necessarily amongst all of those? So, yeah. um, So Magnet and Bloody Disgusting have kind of championed this whole revival of the horror anthology. And I think it's great because it gives a lot of directors opportunities to kind of showcase what they can do. Um, I, me Personally, as someone who's seen the VHS movies, um, th- both the ABCs of Death and um, Southbound, Holidays, XX, all those types of things, um, VHS 2 is probably my favorite of all of them. Um, I kind of have a soft spot for the ABCs of Death movies. Um, I do not think they are great movies, but I thoroughly enjoy putting them on and just they're 26 short films that are about five minutes long one for every letter of the alphabet um kind of a a low-key recommendation for the abcs of death series i guess <laughs> um but i would say that this is an upper tier one nice um with anthologies they're tough because obviously you're dealing with a lot of different tones you need to jump into the action pretty quickly um and so you kind of don't know what you're going to get with everything, but fortunately a lot of these move pretty fast. And if you're not really digging one, they kind of move on to the next one pretty quickly. Um, so I would say this is a, an, an upper tier one. Um, you've watched most of them as well, right? Yep. I have. So, but I would assume if you liked this one, the best that you would agree with me with that. So. Yes. And I think that's my problem with ABCs of death is that you get for every good one you've got like four that you're like anthology films on a whole like it's it can be a bit of a grab bag you don't know Mm -hmm. what you're gonna get some are obviously better than others and you uh yeah you multiply that by uh every letter of the alphabet (laughs) yeah it becomes a little dicey (laughs) yeah it's but but i think it is great because there are definitely directors and films that i've found because of watching anthology movies that i probably wouldn't have been aware of if I wouldn't have watched those movies, just saying, hey, that's a clever idea, or I like the way this is shot, um, I'm going to check out some of their other stuff. Um, so I think, like, go anthology movies. I'm a pro-anthology person. <laughs> pro-anthology. <laughs> um, but yeah. Have you ever gone back and watched like some of the older ones, like the original like Twilight Zone movie or Tales from the Crypt? So I have ac- I, I watched the show Tales from the mm-hmm. from the Crypt. Um, and Twilight Zone. I did watch the the movie, especially when I started getting into film more because of all the of the history. controversy yeah. and stuff behind yeah. it. Um, but also kind of the Creep Show movies yep. and stuff like that. So it, it's side. yeah, it's fun to go back and look at at some of those because. Um, 
I mean, America obviously does a lot, but then you can venture into kind mm. of the Asian horror. There's one called Three Extremes, which is also great. Um, but if you're if you're into that type of stuff, there is a plethora of options for you out there. Um, and that that movie's on Shutter, by the way, uh, VHS ninety four, which is the strictly horror streaming platform. Um, you can find most of those types of movies on that platform. Um, so would recommend. All right. Well, we do have some 007 adjacent movies coming up with Jared. I'm going to briefly talk about a movie that I saw. I don't have a lot of thoughts on it, so it should only take a couple minutes. Um, I recently saw the movie The Guilty, which is on Netflix. Uh, It's a new Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Um, It follows an LAPD cop played by Jake Gyllenhaal named Joe that has been restricted to 911 duty. Uh, We don't get the explicit reason for this, uh, but we learn over time through pieces of context provided by exposition in certain phone calls. Uh, When the movie opens, Joe's receiving, you know, your typical kinds of 911 calls, you know, house fire, or I've been injured on my bike, or this woman won't get out of my car. And he's being kind of flippant with a lot of them because he very clearly doesn't want to be there. Um, So everything comes to a stop, though, when a woman named Emily calls... And Emily sounds like she's in danger and she's sort of like talking very cryptically. Uh, and so Joe has to sort of guide her on how to um, answer all of his questions while still sounding like she's having a conversation uh, with, with someone familiar like you do when you're in danger. Um, so as you might expect, the call gets disconnected. Joe's now on the search for how to get her back in touch and uh, rescue Emily. He calls in some favors, or in some cases, he attempts to call in favors um, from his former colleagues at the LAPD, uh, including his old partner and dispatch operator. Um, And these are some of the phone calls that fill in context uh, for for Joe's incident, not only in, in like, clues, you know, for, like, hey, this is what we need to do tomorrow, but also in the way certain characters treat him. So you sort of get the sense of, of... where he falls on on their, you know, how they feel about him because of this incident. Um, so the entire movie takes place in just two rooms, the main 911 call center uh, and the break room of the call center. Um, and Joe and the 911 operators are the only actors we actually see on screen. Everything else mm. in this movie is performed entirely through uh, voice-acted phone calls, which is really surprising considering the cast is actually like, you know, recognizable faces, you know. Or recognizable voices. Not not as much as I thought. Is really? The thing. Well, that's, here's the thing is like, I, I'm a casual like voice actor fan. Okay. And I'm, I'm very much in the camp like, let voice actors voice act and let, you know, yeah. celebrities <laughs> be celebrities. That's how I feel whenever we've watched like a, uh, uh, an Asian dub movie, basically. Yeah. A lot of times I'll go and get American, like when we've watched like um, Spirited Away or something like that. Yeah, just watched that just with my am- kids within the last month. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. And so they'll get recognizable names instead of like experienced voice actors. But I have to, I have to hand it to this movie. Like this, the performances were all very well executed, including Jill and Hall. I would say, you know, the off screen characters performed better. Um, and, and so that's where this movie really shines. Um, but as you might expect from like single room, you know, phone booth type movies, right? plot points are predictable. That kind of leaves the climax falling a little bit flat. Um, so 
you know, when, when you have single room movies, it kind of hinges on progression and performance. Performance was accomplished very well. Progression, not horrible, mm. but it's it's a good thing, I would say, that this movie's only just over 90 minutes. So I was unaware of this movie, but while you were talking, I pulled up some stuff, um, and it's Antoine Fuqua. Fuqua, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I've Fuqua. heard Fuqua, Fuqua is what I've heard. Fuqua, but. and I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, he's an action director. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, is this an action-oriented movie? I know with the limited spots, it's probably hard to do that, but this is someone who did, like, Olympus Has Fallen and Training Day and... Uh, the remake of The Magnificent Seven, yeah, the Equalizer. Uh, Southpaw. Yeah. So lots of more action-oriented movies. Uh, visually, not at all. Okay. <laughs> not not in the slightest bit. Um, it's scored a little bit like an action movie. Interesting. Which, okay. w- not not quite, you know, you don't get the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, <laughs> but you do get moments of, like, silence or, like, deep bass that feel like an action movie. I didn't know this was, like, a self-contained movie and its locations. Does it call attention to itself by, by doing that, or does it feel at least natural, or do you um, just get swept up in the story, or are you just, like, they're really, like, working hard to, like, not show what else is going on? I don't... I wouldn't say that it totally draws attention to that. I think they um, they excelled at being descriptive with the environments over the phone. And you do have one big, like, news screen in the 911 center that mm. sort of, like, is is almost constantly showing the wildfires of California, essentially. So um, it, it throws, you know, environmental, uh, not like, you know, green environmental, but like, location environments uh in context through that but otherwise i would say it doesn't really draw attention to that and it does feel a little bit natural did you ever uh see the movie or recall hearing about a movie from uh like the early 2010s called the call with halle berry that's what i was thinking yeah yeah which when i saw the guilty come up on netflix and i read the premise i was like uh halle berry did this movie yeah it's (laughs) it's and and you even get a phone call with like a little kid uh, yeah. in this movie as nice. well. So, But her it, operator picks up on that call. is like, I got this. You go ahead and focus on other things. Jake Gyllenhaal, right? No, actually, <laughs> not quite. But <laughs> there, there is a little bit of like power struggle in, in the 911 mm. center. Not too much, but um, anyways, it's, yeah, it's, you don't have to see it, I don't think, especially if you've seen movies like The Call mm. or Phone Booth or something like that. But uh, it's it's not bad, but it's not great. And if you watch it, you're only out 90 minutes. I was watching it while doing something else, and I felt like I absorbed everything that I needed to. I only had to maybe rewind once or twice to get a couple details. But nice. All right, we're going to throw it to Jared. We've got some um, 007 adjacent films to talk about, but before we do that, I want to get everyone's history with 007. And I'll start, and I'll, I'll premise the whole 007 conversation by saying that I've only seen a few 007 movies. They were all Daniel Craig ones. And then I've seen bits and pieces of other... Here and there. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to watch a couple of the Pierce Brosnan ones, but these kinds of action movies have never been like my priority. And so I never spent the time. So I've seen Skyfall, I've seen Spectre, and now No Time to Die. All right, so you're three in. I'm three, yes. All right. Uh, Lexi, what's your history? Um, Very limited, I have only seen Casino Royale. Oh. So wow. 
is that the first? That's the one first. Yeah, and yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, I, I believe it's the uh, man. I hope I don't get this wrong. The first uh, novel Ian Fleming wrote with James Bond, and it's the first Daniel Craig movie. I, I, okay. I think you're correct in that it's the first novel. Right. But yes, that is my only only one before this one. So okay. I think I got right at the beginning. I got the bookends. Okay, Jake. Um, I'm somewhat familiar. I've seen all of the Daniel Craig, well, all five of them now. And um, I think I have seen all of the Pierce Brosnan ones. Um, I remember when I was younger watching them, but it's more, I remember a scene here, a scene here. Can't remember if they're, which movie exactly they're from. Um, And then I have seen, um, what is the one that has Christopher Walken in it? Is that? Oh gosh. Uh, Is that Living Daylights? Christopher Walken in a a 007 I think it's a View to Kill maybe. Yeah. (laughs) I believe you're right. He did the yes, theme it song. Is a view to, yes, he did the he did the theme song. Um, there's a cowbell joke to be made there. But, um, and then I've seen uh, Doctor No, the the first uh, Sean Connery one. Um, I think at one point I wanted to go and try to watch all of them, and then I realized how overwhelming that was going to be. Um, it's an and admirable kind of, uh, feat. Yeah, uh, but that's kind of my my relationship with James Bond. All right. And then Jared, as part of this uh, 007 adjacent stuff, you went back and watched one of the previous ones, as I recall. Yeah, I went back and uh, rewatched The Spy Who Loved Me, which, you know, according to most people, is probably Roger Moore's best outing as James Bond. You know, for me growing up, as soon as I was able to start going to movies, it was Pierce Brosnan for me. Mm -hmm. So I saw all of his movies. I've seen all of Daniel Craig's. And, you know, according to my mom, who's a purist, as far as, like, the first person who plays a role is the only person who can ever play the role. So she doesn't recognize anybody beyond Michael (laughs) Keaton as Batman for some weird reason. Like, Adam West never happened. But (laughs) Sean Connery. He doesn't count. (laughs) Counted for me. I watched that guy, uh, the 60s Batman, like, every Sunday night after the 700 Club as a kid. (laughs) Anyways, but so Sean Connery was also the other James Bond. I knew that's the one who started it on screen. So I've seen all of Brosnan, all of Craig's, and I've gone through and watched most of Connery's. And just like the rest of you, uh, I've seen like bits and pieces here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, like Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. Uh, you know, I've s- seen some of their stuff, not too much. And then, you know, George Lazenby, the one-off Bond, nothing nothing at all there. <laughs> Did he have but, much of an acting career? So uh, that, He was more of a the, model, wasn't he? He was. And... That's the first thing I want to talk about is this documentary. It's on Hulu. It's a Hulu original called Becoming Bond. And it's uh, it's a wild, wild story about this guy who comes in out of nowhere with no acting experience whatsoever and is from Australia and somehow lands the coveted role of taking over James Bond from Sir Sean Connery, of all people. And it's all told from George Lazenby himself. So if this is true, like I said, it's wild. It's also a little heartbreaking in some ways, but holy cow, he I, he basically didn't graduate high school, was just an uh, auto mechanic, uh, worked his way up to become like a car salesman, and then he chases a girl to London that he's been after off and on for years, and there he's discovered by a photographer. This leads him to doing some modeling, and basically he is told to just you know, bully and bulldoze his way into getting an audition for James Bond. And 
if nothing else, George Lazenby has at least the charisma. And he's got kind of like the looks and everything too. His charisma and his bravado alone essentially get him this role, as well as bluffing really, really hard. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's his life story, like how he grew up, how he became Bond, and then kind of like the fallout from it. And you really learn about like kind of like what it did to him immediately, the effect. And it wasn't, you know, when I kind of started hearing about like all the different Bonds, uh, he, he was a bit of a punchline and, you know, this guy who just couldn't shake it or wasn't good enough. The thing is, though, is at least according to him, they offered him like six more Bond films like immediately after this, as well as a million dollar like signing bonus to like stay on. They wanted him. And, you know, he was he was good. But as far as like what it called on for him to do and be like not just on screen, but off screen, he wasn't having it. And so, you know, basically he just kind of like bucked the system like right away. He grew a beard. He grew his hair, which all that was a huge no-no in the eyes of the producers who were like, no, 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 no. You need to like appear as Bond as much as you can. So he basically turned it all down and, you know, his life went in a different direction. But the way this documentary is done is really interesting in that it uh, has some somewhat high production value for all the recreations of like past scenes. And they actually cast people you recognize in there as well, like the young George Lazenby is played by Josh Lawson, who you might recognize from like Anchorman 2 or this year's Mortal Kombat remake. He played Kano. Uh, then like you get like Jane Seymour, you know, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman popping up in the scene. You get Jake Johnson from uh, The New Girl popping up in the scene, as well as like Jeff Garland from Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's just it's kind of like this weird dichotomy of like hearing this guy's life story, but being mildly distracted in a lot of like these dramatic recreation scenes with people you're like um what's that guy doing there (laughs) uh that's not how that should play out but it's also done to comedic effect as well and so it's it's a pretty enthralling um entertaining story george lazenby if nothing else he's a raconteur and can tell a good story so you know it's like 90 minutes definitely would recommend it you know if you got uh you know if, if you've got the itch to find out more about the history of the bond films themselves Excellent. And like you said, that's a Hulu original, so you can catch that on Hulu. Exactly. Yep. All right. So unless anyone has any other thoughts before we move along, we're going to move into our feature film, No Time to Die. And so I'm, I'm going to say that um, before I, I give this, uh, this opener that I, I did see Spectre and I did not like it. At all, so I don't remember pretty much anything at all that happened except for <laughs> one scene with Christoph Waltz. I forget everything else that happened in that movie. I'm I'm so fascinated by those of you who have like seen only Spectre or Casino Royale, and that like so many of these movies tie together in so many ways. So I'll be very interested to hear your perspectives on this. Yeah, one. Yeah, it was fun while watching this to kind of pick out things that were like, oh, that's from this. Oh, mm-hmm. that's from this. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's from this. So yeah. Not that I would say it necessarily takes away or adds to a more cumulative experience, but it's interesting. There's, there's a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I forgot was that uh, Madeline was even in Spectre at all, uh, which apparently she was. So, <laughs> uh, No Time to Die, the latest in the 007 franchise, follows Daniel Craig's final outing as James Bond. Uh, the movie actually opens in the 90s with a young girl and her mostly incapacitated mother in a cabin in a wintry wilderness. Um, before long, this cabin is invaded by a masked figure 
that murders the mother and attempts to murder this little girl. On her escape, she falls through the ice, uh, and as the masked figure watches her under the ice, decides on mercy instead and rescues her. We then fast forward to relatively modern day, like five years ago, uh, post-Spectre, five years uh, prior to No Time to Die. A lot of time jumps before we get to that opening credit song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Bond is in Italy, seemingly in retirement uh, with Madeline. And and this, of course, is implying that Madeline was the same little girl in the flashback. Um, and part of this outing in Italy has Madeline asking Bond to let go of a, a deceased previous love interest. I assume that's from... That's from Casino Royale. That's Vesper. Okay. Uh, played by mm-hmm. uh, Eva Green. Eva Green, yeah. Okay. And then this the the grave of Vesper is rigged with explosives. And this sets off the first chase scene in the movie. Bond, assuming that Madeline was somehow compromised or maybe even responsible, parts ways with her after assuring her safety on a train. And this sets into the modern day of No Time to Die. I don't really know where to begin with this. this I was going to say, are you going to go through like the whole thing? Because we might need the whole two hours and 43 minutes. <laughs> minute runtime of No Time to Die to do that. No, basically, this this sort of follows Bond in retirement and and all of this stuff after Madeline. Um, and, and there's something sinister going on in the world, and they're trying to get him back in the fold. Um, and, and this includes the new 007 trying to get him back on board with, with searching down uh, this, this new, um, God, I don't even know what you would call it, but um, the, basically an a infectious disease facility has been infiltrated. Uh, like a biological and, yeah. warfare. Yeah. 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 Bringing in good old nanotechnology to explain and do it all. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of the same as like, you know, an action movie you might expect, but at the same time, compared to some of the other 007 movies that I've seen, um, it feels different. Something feels off. Mm. It feels, uh, what I told uh, Bo in private was that something about it feels really, feels really alien. Um yeah, it's it's just strange, and I guess one of the one of the thoughts that I had at the end of it, uh, and this may sound a little bit weird, is that when I got to the end, I was sitting there, and it felt like an appropriate end, but at the same time, I was thinking that the whole movie would have felt a little bit more natural in the form of an anime, huh? Which sounds a little strange, um, but that's I don't know, just sort of the plot points, progression, and character development felt a little bit more like that sort of typical anime movie to me. And, and that's why I one of the things that like felt so strange. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on I liked, the movie overall? I liked, uh, you know, just setting up that opening scene. I'd love to get Lex and Jake's take on it because I love that opening scene in that it felt like a horror movie, like something out of The Strangers almost with the setup and just the tension building there. So yeah. I, I I really like, kind of liked the the footing it started off with there. Yeah, I loved it when I someone who doesn't have a lot of exposure to James Bond films in general, I wasn't really sure what to expect because I don't remember anything like that in Casino Royale. And so when that started, I was kind of confused because at first I was like, should I know these people from all of the movies that I've missed in between? Um but then that first jump scare hit 
And I think I had about three more after that in the next five minutes. Nice. Mm -hmm. But it was great. Just the tone setting of that first scene. Um, I think they did a really good job segueing into the almost present day five years before um, and connecting those dots. So I, I loved the first scene. I wanted more of it. I told Jake on the way home that I would have loved to have more backstory on Madeline as a child and what it was that her father did specifically. And I know that kind of comes later, but I would have, I thought the little girl that played her was great. I thought that all of that scene was great. I loved it. Yeah. And even, even the mask that is being worn is very horror movie esque. Um, it, it definitely sets a different tone for the movie um, that you don't see in those other ones. Obviously, action plays a, a big role in all of these movies, but but kind of setting it up in a way that's kind of unfamiliar um, than what maybe we're used to in a James Bond movie, um, I think it really kind of says, okay, this is what we're in for. Um, and, and obviously the movie fluctuates from time to time in terms of, uh, kind of the tone, but I think kind of setting it up like that was a very interesting way of, of doing it. Um, if Did you enjoy the movie? I guess, did you... Yeah, what was your ultimate takeaway? You, you, it kind of sounded ba- a little bit like yes and a little bit like no. So Well, well I liked it more than Spectre because I, I actually remember what happened in there the movie, go. but I of the ones I've seen, Skyfall is still my favorite. Mm. Which I think is a relatively common yeah. belief. Yeah. Out of the Craig films and probably out of my Bond film experience as well, Skyfall is still at the top, followed closely yeah. by Casino Royale. Casino Royale is my favorite of the of of them, but I, I completely understand Skyfall being someone's favorite. Yeah. And I think this one I like more than Casino Royale. Uh, there you go. So. And I and I don't know. It, it might be something as well as bringing in like these directors who really have a good vision outside of just the Bond franchise. Cause yeah. you know, with Skyfall, we had Sam Mendes coming in and like adding his touch and everything to it. But here with Carrie Joji, uh, Fukunaga, if I'm saying his name right, which I hope I am. Yeah. Uh, I, so. you know, watching what he did on like true detective, then like in his movies, like beast of no nation and everything mm-hmm. like that. It's like, this guy really does know how to like put a sequence together he knows how to add tension, whether it's dramatic, whether it's even horror. And you get that in like season one of True Detective. And he wrote it. I know. He also, was going to direct re- it. I was yeah. so excited that he was originally going to be the director. I really loved what uh, Andrew Machete did for, you know, it chapter one and chapter two. But I really was excited what he was going to. So when he was named as the new next Bond film after stepping away from the Warner Brothers it adaptation, I was pretty excited. And I really felt like he kind of put his mark on this one. I think I, I, I should follow up with what you guys said that I think tension is performed really well in this movie, just overall. I think tension is really well. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the scene with Christoph Waltz, which I was looking forward to him coming back. You know you you know what's going to happen before it even happens, um, but you're just so tense the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the way that was shot, and most specifically in like, not necessarily the dialogue, but the silences that are in between mm-hmm. the pieces of dialogue really help build the tension specifically in that scene. Yeah, his introduction there being brought in, you can't redo Silence of the Lambs anymore because they figured out how to kind of like do it in a modern day setting without Hannibal Lecter even being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, 
I guess, Jared, what's what's your main takeaway? How do you feel about it? Uh, so, you know, what I think is probably the best thing for me with the Craig era of Bond films is they've taken this character who, you know, as we mentioned, you know, this franchise is decades old. Dr. No turns 60 next year. They've taken this character we've known for so long as this calm, cool, collected, charismatic, and capable character. I tried to think of as many C words as possible to keep that alliteration going. <laughs> but they've taken that and they've kind of turned it on his head. Because, you know, in the past, James Bond has always kind of been a person everybody looks to. And most people are like, oh, I wish I could be him. You know, I wish I could be James Bond. But what they did with the Craig films over the course of these five movies is kind of like showed the tragedy of it all. They really turned it into a tragedy. Whereas, you know, in a lot of previous iterations, it was like the British saying, you know, keep calm and carry on. It just goes from one movie to the next. But from the beginning with Casino Royale and, you know, spoiler alert for Casino Royale and things like that, knowing that he loses Vesper, he loses his like first love. And then that thread of loss continuing throughout the rest of the movies, you go to Skyfall where he's having to reckon with his childhood as well as losing, you know, the original M as played by Judy Dench and things like that. And then what they start in Spectre as well as in Continue On Here in No Time to Die what you see is he's still calm. He's still cool and collected, charismatic and all of that. But you see the other side of it in that this is a tragic figure because of all the loss he has to endure because of what this life doesn't afford him and what it costs him. It's not just the loss of life, but it's the loss of opportunities. And you see glimpses of what he could have had in this movie. And this is just not something we typically see in a Bond film. Uh, interest, uh, yeah, ironically, the one other Bond film I can think of that they do this in is On Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby. Lazenby one. Yep. He, he gets married in that movie. He loses his wife. So there's pathos and stuff there. But then the next movie you bring in Roger Moore and it's business as usual. Bond is Bond and, you know, wooing and winning left and right, things like that. So with Daniel Craig's movies and kind of like this oeuvre that we've gotten from Casino Royale through No Time to Die – I really feel like they've constructed like kind of a whole complete character. Mm -hmm. They definitely decided to bump up kind of the the realness of the character. I know that from the little bit that I've watched of the other ones, they definitely put more of the spy aspect and kind of the charisma aspect. We're kind of focusing more on kind of the, the brutish nature of kind of the Daniel Craig version kind of takes it in a different direction. Um, I just think of that. I'm just going to, I feel like in Casino Royale are the ones that I always think about is the, the scene um, when Vesper's talking to him on the train mm -hmm. and she's kind of laying out his backstory. And that just doesn't feel like anything you would see in one of the other ones um, as well as in that one, when he is drinking the scotch in the, in the hotel room and he's bleeding all over the place. You actually see kind of the realness of that character as opposed to just like a suave man in a suit and I think that kind of carries over into this uh, film as well. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I would put it as third, I think, yes. of the Craig movies. I think that's, from what I've seen, kind of a relatively common feeling towards people. I think people, nobody talks about Quantum of Solace. It's like it didn't happen. It's like it didn't. Honestly, that's one probably has the least connective tissue in this movie you as get, well. You get a few holdover characters. You get Jeffrey Wright still in there as Felix, Well, Jeffrey which is Wright great. comes in, in in Casino Royale. Yeah. yeah. No, no, yes. But like carrying over from Casino Royale into the next movie, there's connective tissue oh, there. But yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. otherwise, you know, it's like almost they, they didn't have any writers around to make that happen due to a writer's strike at the time of that movie, maybe. That's fair. <laughs> oh, 
Never heard of such a thing. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that. This puts more, for me, it puts more wins in that column for Daniel Craig than not. Casino Royale, Skyfall, now No Time to Die. Yeah, Quantum Solace and Spectre uh, didn't quite do it for me. So uh, Spectre does, yes, it does introduce uh, Madeline Wright and brings in Blofeld, which is, you know, at the time it seemed like a very smart, calculated move. I mean, it's the most iconic Bond villain. I mean, there's a reason, you know, Mike Myers modeled Dr. Uh, Dr. Evil after Blofeld's original look played by Donald Pleasance. So it's like, yes, let's update them, bring them in, mm-hmm. especially after Skyfall. They know what they're doing. But uh, for me, I think the the shortfalling for Spectre was just the way it kind of like retconned the previous three movies. It felt more like a dupe to the audience that Blofeld was behind all this rather than like this revelation you get sometimes where it's like, oh, wow. What a what an amazing feat. In this instance, uh, it, so many Bond films are able to stand on their own and just kind of be what they were. In that case with Spectre, it was just it was too much to try and like swallow, to try and like accept, I think, for Bond. But all right. Well, if we don't have any more thoughts before we move on, we're going to go into spoilers here in just a minute. Um, I guess I'll just say I know I already said that this one was probably my favorite one between the two that I've seen. Um, But kind of going off of what you guys were saying, I do feel like um, Daniel Craig's Bond is just kind of a testament to the, like, bringing James Bond into modern day where, because I know I always saw him as just like the suave spy and I never saw the movie. So I just assumed he was this ladies man. Everything he did, it was with a little bit of flair and it was just all very smooth as planned. Um. But then when we watch Casino Royale, it's like the opening scene where he's chasing the people around, or the one guy around who he's tasked with bringing in or whatever the job is for that opening scene. Um, he's stumbling around and he is getting beat up and he is taking these hits just like all of the other characters are and very clumsy mm-hmm. in a very clumsy way. Mm-hmm. So I like to think of it as that they're trying to portray him more as being like the every man instead of just being this one man that's on this high pedestal that can't be touched at right. all where he's taking the shots and mm-hmm. he is drinking on the floor of his hotel room and, <laughs> and that sentiment is is echoed in this movie as well Absolutely. so so i think that's a great point yeah i was gonna say you get a more of a peek behind the curtain you know like mm-hmm. behind the show of like really what goes on that's one of the things I loved about like Skyfall is when he's brought back into the fold after you know being shot off a moving train and surviving that somehow mm-hmm. because he's Bond. <laughs> but he's doing like the he's doing the physical fitness test and they're like he is like wildly unprepared and out <laughs> yes. of shape. Can't do so. Yeah, there is there's that realness that yeah I think has just been a testament to really like bring bringing in uh, kind of up in the game for Craig's movies at least. Yeah, definitely. And then I think with that with the subtle digs of there being the new 007 where it's mm. just like, well, anybody can be 007. I and wanted to know what his 00 number was when, sh- when Lashana Lynch was like, right. uh, 00 what? 00 what? I was like, yes, please. 008. Yeah, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take this opportunity to move on into a conversation that includes spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie and wish to remain unspoiled, now is your time to click away. We hope to see you again soon when you have seen the movie. Until then, stay tuned. After the bumper, we're going to be right back. Could it really be that simple? The secret lies with Charlotte. 
Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Those keys, Rose. You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe? Silent breathe is people! The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. All right, and so now we are in our conversation that includes spoilers. Uh, we tend to like to throw the big twist here. It's hard to know what that one is in this case, but I'm going to pick one <laughs> and that James Bond has a daughter. Jamie Bond. Jamie Bond. <laughs> I was going to say a different big spoiler. What's yours? What's your favorite one? This is the last Daniel Craig James Bond movie. <laughs> Because James Bond died. Because he I, yeah. did. I was going to say, it was bittersweet from the start because we, I think everybody just knew this was going to be the last one with Daniel Craig. Um, you know, he's been very vocal about mm-hmm. his displeasure with some of the past movies and the production. So was he going to come back or not? So everybody kind of knew this would be the swan song, but holy cow. Yeah. I uh, mean, we've, we've, we've had James Bond turnover before. Yeah. But we didn't just know that they're he was done doesn't die. mean they're dead. Yeah. So, uh, but I don't think what Exploded. falling off a train. Yeah. I don't think this is the same as falling off Fine. a train. If you gotta, if you gotta hit them with like you know fifty missiles, go for it. I guess. <laughs> well, we did talk about that. It was kind of reminiscent of Dark Knight Rises, where you think that Batman oh, yeah, is sacrificing new, yeah. himself with the missiles coming directly at him. There were the multiple movie. points in this movie that actually reminded me of Dark Knight Rises. I could see that too. Yeah. Him being out of the game, kind of beaten down, needing to come back right. because of something that was personal to him. I um, actually said Rami Malek reminded me, the way that he was portraying the villain reminded me of the way that Tom Hardy chose to portray Bane. Hmm. Um, just kind of some of the the subtleties of his mannerisms, I guess. I can see that. Yeah, that makes a little bit sense to me. Yeah, and Robbie Malik, you know, this was like his first role he lands after winning the Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, and we have to kind of like wait this long, but still, incredible presence for somebody who shows up only at the beginning of the movie, behind a mask, and mm-hmm. then disappears for a huge chunk of the running time, but comes back in and, you know, is still able to be menacing, yeah. you know, throughout. Definitely. So the daughter, though... Yes. Yeah, he has a he has a uh, an an unknown daughter with Madeline, uh, who she of course claims is not not his not his daughter. But you Come know on, those blue eyes. Yeah, exactly. We get the <laughs> shot that really hangs on her eyes. Something that I thought was really interesting about that whole plot point was that uh, Daniel Craig's blue eyes was a point of contention when, when he was he cast because yeah. they said James Bond does not have blue eyes. Oh my god! And gosh. so turning that into a plot point was. So awesome to see. <laughs> um, it was just kind of like a, yeah. like, to just say, we're going to do what we want to do. Right. And, and Not it was be great. beholden to just a small portion of like this community. And just kind of turning Bond into, he is not, he does not fit into this box. Yeah. He can be something else. Um, and let's start small with blue eyes. And then maybe we can venture out from there. Right. And I think that goes back to what Lexi was saying about, you know, anybody can be a 007. Exactly. And, and and that's pretty cool. I actually, I have a friend that's really into all of the 007 stuff. He's seen all the movies. He's read all the novels. Wow. And and yeah. I asked him one time after I had finally seen Skyfall before Spectre was coming out. I was like, so 
is James Bond always like the same guy? Is this sort of like a moniker that you pick up like, you know, like a pirate you take up the the cloak after the the <laughs> next one dies, your cannonball for the next, you know, 50 years or whatever. And I didn't totally get a clear answer from him. So okay. I still don't totally because, I mean, you could almost say, like, the biggest twist, then, is the fact that in the credits, it still says James Bond will return. Did so, it? So I was going to mention that I did not stick around to see if there was any post-credits stuff. We didn't either, so. Yeah, I, yeah you is can there look no, online Is there a scene, or is it just the text? It's just the text as it's always been. Uh, you know, in the past, they would even kind of put the next title of the movie back mm-hmm. when they knew that. Then I think it just got shortened to James Bond will return. Well, that, that makes things really interesting, because I know that um, there was, I guess— controversy when the Lashana new Lynch. When mm-hmm. Lashana Lynch and I think there was some speculation that that's just the direction that the series was going to go in right. um, but with that obviously they're going to do something else I would be a little bit I mean it probably is going to be this way but I would be a little bit upset if all of the things from this series is kind of is thrown a, by the wayside especially something that we talked about is the Ana de Armas scene yes. is maybe the Armas. best scene yes. in the entire movie. I was going to talk. She about that. Is, I want more of her. She is like the Paloma, best. I think. Yes, she's so good in this <laughs> in this film, and she's in one scene. And I'm like, this better not be the last time that we right. see this character because she is so fun and so charismatic. And I mean, everything I've seen with her in is great, uh, or at least she is very good in. And so I, I hope that they don't throw out. Yes. All of those things, especially that character. That's that's a big question mark for me too, because it was it was that that favor for Felix sequence down in yeah. Cuba was just it was wow. the best, and that uh, you know like as she says like three weeks training and uh, <laughs> she's, she's, Give off, or take. she's she's yeah. handling herself just as well as Bond, and uh, that's and and Lashana Lynch as well too. Like her introduction is great there. Where uh, you know she kind of like seduces Bond in a way and like takes off the hair. He, the one-liners are typical Bond, as you'll see in any other, where he says, "You know, that's not the first thing I thought you would take off." Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, she and so many other women in this film, especially like Madeline, who we actually do, yeah, we get this backstory carried across two films. So many women have great agency. You know, we're moving past just to like. You know, oh, she was a Bond girl or things mm-hmm. like that. There's a lot of depth to some of these characters. And yeah, like that's the, not the saddest thing from this movie, but it could be one of the more sadder things if I don't get more Ana de Armas. I think it's great that they have been able to to prop up these female characters in a very masculine series. Because I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, we've already talked about. Leah Seydoux and Lashana Lynch and Ana de Armas. I really like Naomi Harris. Yeah, as well. I mean, she was Great really good in Penny. Skyfall, um, but then also reprises that role in this movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the supporting cast in this movie does such a good job. Like th- they bring in of, heavy hitters. I yeah. mean, Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey uh, Wright Ray, Ray, uh, Ray, Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. Yeah. I mean, even even I, I I wanted to point out uh, David Densick, who plays the scientist. Okay. Oh. Um, I thought he was really fun in this movie. Yep. I really liked Rory Kinnear, who plays um, like M's 
second hand or yeah. like his side guy, basically. I thought, <laughs> Wait, what do you want to call him? Second in command? <laughs> what, I don't know. what did you all think of Billy Magnuson as, so, as Ash? So Billy Magnuson is such a goofy person in everything I've seen, and he kind of does that in this as well. I, which I was so – yeah, I was going to say, that what I liked about this is Smiles it has this lighter – Yeah. Has a lighter – this movie adds a little bit of a lighter touch here and there. A lot of comedic efforts. Uh, but, yeah, I think of Billy Magnuson. I loved him in Game Night, and yes, that's like what that's I think what of. that's what we thought about. So, yeah, to see this guy – Bond has a line of like just referring to him as like Book of Mormon over there, which was great. <laughs> uh, so I was curious uh, what everybody else thought of just like, yeah, an injection of Billy Magnuson into this movie. I thought he did great. Yeah. I thought he was – totally fitting for the role and I loved seeing the switch when you do realize that mm. he is villainous yeah um and I hope that it opens the door for him to do more things where he gets yeah. to not be so silly all the time and do more of those roles because I think he would probably be really good at it based on this yeah I, that sorry go for it I was gonna say I think the way that that he acts like his you know Book of Mormon smiles too much makes a lot of sense to be working with Rami Malek's character like mm, yeah. it that makes sense for him to be this this like the muscle in that specific operation mm -hmm. so right. i think that makes a lot of sense and it was fun to see kind of that transition from being kind of really silly when you first see him and then when he's like yelling at bond to be like you need to stop asking questions like to, to when he's interrogating because at that point you're starting to see that aggression but you also don't know where he falls kind of on because that, that, that could be like a CIA thing, exactly. too. Yeah. And so it kind yeah. of it, it I, shows you what this person is capable of without giving too much away. Now, on, obviously, in two minutes is when the actual turn, or whatever, like very soon. But but yeah, I, it, I agree with you that it'd be fun to see him do more, I guess, serious stuff, I, I if that's the way you want to put it. I'm curious, this being a Bond film and everybody even having history, uh, like see, you talked about, like you may not have seen a lot, but you kind of know. Mm -hmm. You know the archetype. You kind of know what to expect. So with some of the, like, the typical tropes of a James Bond film, I'm wondering how it all played for you Like as far as like, let's start, like the, the music, the opening song by Billie Eilish. Where did that like fall for y'all? Because for me, I think Sam Smith, and the song they did for Spectre, that was my favorite part. I love that about Spectre. The only thing I loved was Sam Smith's song. But I also loved Adele's from Skyfall. What about, it's like one of those like key moments for a Bond film. Um, so I'm, the one that I'm the most familiar with is The World Is Not Enough. Is that actually a Bond song or does it just sound like a Bond song? Oh, no, no, that, yeah. Uh, the World Is Not Enough, that's the 99 Pierce Brosnan one. Okay. Yeah. Now, was that originally performed by Garbage, or is the Garbage version a cover? Um, I actually don't know. Usually, these are original songs written for specifically for the movies themselves. So, if Garbage or Shirley Manson, if she didn't actually write it, she was probably the original performer, at least. Okay. That would um, be my assumption. That's interesting that that's the one that you you think of. Well, I, I'm just a fan of garbage that's in, nice. in general, <laughs> so that's that's it. Well, but and that kind of goes into I'm a big fan of uh, you know my name, uh, which is the Casino oh, yeah. Royale song because I'm a big Chris Cornell fan, um, and so that one always sticks with me, even though stylistically it's pretty different. I think from all the other ones. I mean, when you look at Adele and Sam Smith and and Billie Eilish to a certain extent, that kind of 
jazzy crooning style right. is very common in there, obviously, because that plays a big role in the score as well. Um, or when you have someone like the lead singer of Soundgarden do <laughs> uh, do it, it's going to definitely put a different edge to yeah. to it, which honestly for that movie is probably what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, is, is Quantum of Solace, is that... Jack White and Alicia Keys. Uh, is that man. who it is? I, I do, that it's one very I do not weird. recall. <laughs> I remember Madonna did the last Pierce Brosnan one. Yeah. Um, you you were talking about the Yeah. So when when Billy's No Time to Die came out, I honestly didn't 18 really 18 months ago yeah, or however long so ago. So long ago. I think I listened to it the first time when it first came out, and I was like, eh, okay, that's fine. And I've listened to it a few times since. Um but when it started playing in the theater, just in that context, over the theater speakers, I was enamored. Like, There's an effect. I yeah. thought it was yeah. so great. I felt like emotion when it started because because I was somewhat familiar with the song and the fact that I feel like in other songs I, I, or other movies, I I can't remember exactly, but it feels like there's kind of a cut and then the credits start. But because that first opening piano riff starts to come in, like while the there's stuff going on on the screen, and it kind of transitioned into that opening credits, um, it really kind of laid a good foundation, in my opinion, of kind of the what was behind that song. Yeah. Do, do you think this will continue the uh, the Oscar winning streak for both Adele and Sam Smith winning Best Original Song? Do you Ooh. think Billie Eilish has a shot here? I think I everyone think she does. Yeah, I yeah. think everyone loves Billie Eilish. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I'm I'm a fan too and like I don't I'm you know casual fan but I Same. Yeah. yeah. And and so for me this this feels like it exists in the world of James Bond songs mm. that I know. And I'm not familiar with all of them, but it it feels right at home for me. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I, I again probably out of the last 3, it's maybe like third, but that's still a lot higher than a lot of the other Bond films for me. There's some uh, stinkers in there. Yeah. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Um, maybe my reference to Madonna could be in that mix as well for me, too. Love Madonna. It's just, you know, sometimes things just don't work out. Yeah, but- I just think this song in particular fits with the movie so well because mm-hmm. there is something about Billie Eilish's voice that is just, like, very haunting. Mm-hmm. And it is just, like, this sense of longing. And you can really feel that in everything that happens to James Bond in this movie. And so I think it just fits so well in really them putting it behind every time he's having this romantic moment with Madeline, the song is in the background yeah. and it's just like, yes, I yeah. feel that. Uh, what about like the gadgets? Obviously Bond's known for his gadgets. He's always got Q by his side. What uh, did the gadgets stand out for all of you on this go around? I'm a, I'm a big, like, uh, I have a lot of irrational fear about EMPs and relying too much on technology. Um, and and I, I think the EMP could have been utilized a little bit more. So uh, I did love that gadget. Could have seen a little bit more of it because allegedly it was like, you know, he had concerns about how strong it was. But then it was just like, you know, the distance for it wasn't really as wide as, you know, typical EMPs are. So yeah. Um, I would say that that's the one that stands out for me the most. Right. That was his the, yeah, the one watch, watch yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Blew the, the bionic eye. Yeah. Yes. It was mind-blowing. Blofeld's eye. <laughs> I feel like the gadgets played as big of a role in this one yeah. as, as they have in the past, which was interesting because we, we went and saw it at the Alamo Draft House nice. in La Vista, and 
if you've ever been there before, they do a lot of themed videos before the before the the movie actually starts. And they had a fun like countdown of like the top ten or the top five Bond gadgets. So it was fun to kind of see those through there. So is the pen one of them from from Goldeneye. So that was not one of them. Okay. They kind of bounced around and they, they kind of were a little bit vague in some like they they just said the suitcase was one of them <laughs> and like they used the car as one of them. Oh, they talked one? about <laughs> um odd jobs hat. Okay. Um just kind of the 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 ones that you would see on the like a BuzzFeed yeah, like style a video like top 10 <laughs> James Bond devices and it was just like it was like fine. It's like a watch mojo list. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but because of that it kind of got me thinking about that. So I I didn't like obviously the watch plays a role but was there much else? The watch is the most notable for me. Yeah, I I guess the oh, sorry, go ahead. the virus itself is kind of a gadget, yeah. you know. Nanotechnology. Yeah. So <laughs> crazy oh I was gonna say I guess they introduced like the plane submarine I don't know if they use that in other movies oh like He's... the the UAV but you know not you yes oh <laughs> uh, yeah he's had he's had he's aqua had things cars like and things like that gotcha yep. yep there's a good history there yeah um but uh, another takeaway that we had for this when we were driving home it, it's fun when you go to those um, a, a movie there because I've got we've got 45 minutes to talk about the movie on the way home, basically. Um, and something is um, how touch plays such a big role in the destructive nature of the mm. virus that is in there and thinking about when the movie was originally supposed to be released, mm-hmm. how that would have played. Uh, I mean, I think this was first weekend in April of 2020 was supposed to be when this was supposed to come out. Um, Just if if yeah. people came out of the theater and was like, ultimately Bond and the main villain are kind of doomed because they can't touch anyone or else they will die is kind of a, a crazy parallel that we noticed. It also just kind of makes you wonder if there was anything that they decided to take out of the movie, just in light of the events and trying to be semi conscientious. Yeah. Or sensitive. I know I, not to go too off topic, but supposedly that happened with the Falcon and the winter soldier. Oh, that that's what I was just about to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently the main it. the main premise was going to to be more about a virus than just like, you know, a terrorist cell. Yeah. Um there was going to be like bio warfare in it and you know, uh, allegedly that had a role in changing the order of the limited series releases. So, uh yeah, fascinating. Uh I got to say I've never quite seen nanotech used in this specific way, yeah. Um, yep. So that was that was interesting, uh, an interesting idea. Although, anytime that you're using uh, directed, unmanned, you know, technology for killing, you're probably doing something wrong, and this is definitely going to end up in the wrong hands. And why? Yeah, do- thank you, MI6, for starting this program. Apparently, Project Heracles. Yeah, why do people not know that this is how it will always happen every time, always? Like, Yeah, and I was going to say, it was like uh, Chekhov's virus a little bit when they're like, once that gets on you, it will never come off, sort of a thing. And you're like, all right, well, that's going to come back somehow. And then, yeah, you get that at the end where Sa- uh, Safin, is that Malik's character's name? Safin? Safin? Yeah, Something Safin. like that. So 
smashes the the vial that he's had with him containing the DNA coding for both Madeline and the daughter. So James Bond can never touch them again because it'll never come off. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, wouldn't you still try to? I mean, can't Q come up with something eventually? Give him, give him some time. Yeah, he should be able to crack Just this give him code. Time. Yeah, he he is maybe potentially bleeding out, but all the same, like. <laughs> I That's mean, never happened before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he injured himself pretty bad. Another. There was, bond. you know, like a lot of Bond films, there's some pretty egregious misfiring going on with some of the bad guys too at near point blank range, where it seems like he even gets like, like he gets hit by a bullet and he just like barely flinches. Also, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it goes with these movies, I guess. All right. Well, I think we're at a good point to stop seeing James Bond explode. In a missile strike, <laughs> surely something else. Uh, but unless anyone has anything that they want to add, I think we're going to wrap it here. I, I think so. I think I'll be watching more James Bond at some point, I, though, yeah. based on this movie. I think I'm going to at least finish the the Daniel Craig saga for yep. myself. So. It's definitely worthwhile. And it obviously still being October, whether you're listening to it now or not, going to dive into some more horror films. If I was really on top of my game, I would have like seen Halloween Kills today. And I could have talked about that, but that oh, also yeah. would have been that me did being come out. Yeah, that also would have been pointing to me being a really bad father and taking my three year old daughter <laughs> yeah. to it. So uh, I think yeah. it's on Peacock. Actually, it is. Yeah, Jason Blum so. made that deal. She won't remember it. Uh, here's fine, the thing. Right? No, my daughter actually. We were at the Spirit Halloween store because I've given a love of horror to both my kids. She and my son can point out. Michael Myers, and in addition to Freddy Krueger and uh, Jason Voorhees, so we gotta get she'll her remember in the studio. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> hey, you know if we play the uh, Halloween theme song, my son will actually say that's John Carpenter, and I'm like so wow. proud, <laughs> so proud. And most other people or my in-laws would be like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I here's a little anecdote from when I was a kid. I used to watch a lot of horror movies all the time. Uh, and when I was in like fourth grade, I wrote my own like Nightmare on Elm Street script oh, and it. killed off all my friends. Uh, so were they your friends? Well, <laughs> I also wrote a Nightmare on Elm Street movie when I was a kid as well. That's so great! That's yeah. unbelievable. I <laughs> have not, to not hear a these Freddy Krueger movie, but a but something like that. So I need to hear these synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing about a fourth grader writing a story is that it's just a cool way to kill off friends and not sure. a synopsis. <laughs> There's no plot. <laughs> I mean, you could make the argument for a lot of these slasher movies too, but That's yeah, it's all about the inventive kills mostly. Yeah, so exactly. If you got that, then you've got something. There we go. All right, we're going to wrap it here. Happy October, everyone. We'll be back next month, and we'll be taking a look at Last Night in Soho. Until then, everyone, we'll see you at the movies. This episode was recorded in the studios of KZUM 89.3 FM in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find out more about KZUM and listen to more episodes of Cinema Roundtable by visiting kzum.org. Our theme music was composed by Joshua Spaulding.